Setting the pandemic aside for a moment, how is it that in this wealthiest of countries, we have so many health problems and such unhealthy behaviors? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we talk about health from a social psychological perspective, what contributes to the many health problems in our society, and how it all relates to the pandemic. We're going to play for you an interview we conducted with Dr. Jamie Arndt a few years ago. Dr. Arndt is professor and chair of the Department of Psychological Sciences at the University of Missouri. Here's the interview with Dr. Arndt. Welcome, Dr. Arndt. Thank you very much for having me. Great. Jamie, before we get started, could you give us a little review of some of the basic ideas and concepts of Ernest Becker? Sure. Uh, Ernest Becker was primarily concerned with understanding broadly the, the human condition, what it means to be a human. And to answer this question, really started out by, by breaking it down into, into two separate issues. First, trying to understand how are we similar to other animals and noted on the one hand that, that like other animals, we have an instinct to live, a desire uh, for self-preservation. But on the other, uh, we differ quite a bit from other animals in our amazing cognitive, complex, cognitive complexity, which allows us to be aware uh, not only of our own existence, but ultimately quite problematically aware of the inevitability of our non-existence, that is, of our inevitable mortality. And Becker suggested that this awareness would create tremendous potential for anxiety or terror that we largely manage and control by investing in culturally prescribed versions of reality, culturally delineated beliefs that imbue the world with a sense of meaning, a sense of order, and a sense of purpose, and give us the possibility for feeling self-esteem, or feeling like we are people of significance. And heroic. Action. Absolutely, yeah. and heroic as well. Right. So transcending yeah. ourselves. What are some of the, um, the most recent advances in social science? That's a big question. That's a big question. I think there's a number of exciting things. I think uh, three things that, that are particularly interesting are, on the one hand, that much of what we think and much of what we do can be driven by forces outside of our conscious awareness. That is, there's lots of stuff that goes on uh, outside of what we're aware of. Secondly, we can also think about that much of our behavior, while we're often rational beings, often we're also not so rational. And uh, so that, that has a marked impact on how we think, how we judge things, how we behave. And then finally, most pertinent to, to our issues, I think, is the notion that people's concerns about mortality, both consciously and also unconsciously, can exert a pervasive influence on a variety of forms of social behavior. Would you uh, review some of the basic tenets of terror management theory for us? Being a next-gen terror sure, management generation. The, 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 the second generation. Teachers talk about it, yeah, but uh, I'd like to hear you talk about it. Yeah, terror management theory was largely uh, an effort to take some of Becker's ideas and distill them into testable research hypotheses. You can listen to what Becker has to say, read about his work, and perhaps you're impressed with it, perhaps not. But as scientists, what you might want to try and do is to go about testing these ideas to see if they have any empirical merit. And terror management theory was initially an attempt to do that, starting with, with a couple of basic hypotheses, one of which was the notion that if our identification with cultural beliefs, with things that we see as valuable, function to protect us from concerns about mortality, 
Well, then we can then reason if you heighten concerns about mortality or if you remind people of their death, a procedure that we use in a number of different studies, you should observe increased efforts to identify with these cultural belief systems, uh, to defend vehemently the integrity of these views of the world. And so terror management theory was uh, largely initiated with that basic premise in mind. And over the last Ooh, 15 or 20 years or so, there's just been, been a wealth of research exploring derivations of that basic reasoning. It sounds like terror management theory really has the potential to help us understand ourselves. I think so. I think so. I, it's, I think it's an exciting perspective that offers some insights into why we do the things that we do. And these are, of course, the issues that Becker was concerned about. When we bring in scientific methods, we can perhaps substantiate some of these ideas a little bit and get a better understanding of what it means to be a human and why people act the way they act and what people are trying to do to be special, to be unique, to be, as you brought up earlier, Steve, to be a hero. This show's about health. Mm -hmm. How does this fear of death, denial of death, affect our attitudes towards our bodies? Well, one of the things that I think that, that's interesting that Becker points out is he points out that here we are physical creatures, and within this physicality, we have this advanced cognitive apparatus that we call a brain that enables us to realize that we are physical creatures. That is, we realize that in many ways we are just animals. As much as we may be aware of this, though, we often try to deny it. We try to deny. We, we try to deny our physicality, and you see this in a variety of different ways, you can see it in you know, how we think about sex. We prescribe who can have sex with whom and when, how we treat aspects of the body, where we go to the bathroom and how we refer to it. We, we don't necessarily reveal that we're going to uh, go expunge excrement from our anal orifice. We're going to rather go to the powder room. We're going to go <laughs> freshen up. Right. And we, we don't... some skates. <laughs> That, that's a new one for me. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there you have it again, a, a symbolic way of referring to this action to mask some of our physicality. Uh, I, when I think about this, I often think of Jonathan Swift's very wonderful poem, uh, Ladies' Dressing Room, where Strafan goes into the dressing room of Celia, his uh, admired performer, and gets a whiff of, as Swift writes, that ec excremental smell that taints the parts from whence they fell. <laughs> and so when we think about the body in this fashion, it can be very disturbing to us because what the body can do is remind us of our animality, our connection to our creatureliness, and therefore our subjectivity, as it were, to the laws of nature, laws that imply an inevitable decay and an inevitable death. So how does that affect our health, our, our health care. You talk about uh, women in their breast exam, like they have to deal with their body in a, in a very different way than they're used to. Well, that's where I think these ideas get super exciting because you can, you can talk about these issues and you can think, okay, now what is the potential for thinking about the, the existential problematic aspects of being a defecating, breathing, fornicating creature? What are the implications of this for things like health behaviors, for things like breast self-exams. And one of the things I've been doing in collaboration with Jamie Goldenberg, who's at the University of California, Davis, is we've been starting to examine how confronting the physicality of the body can, in many, in many senses, act as a, as a barrier towards people performing these very vital actions. And breast self-exams, I think, is a good example of that, wherein 
a woman has to knead through the breast as, as a mound of flesh in search of some abnormality and in that way have a very intimate confrontation with the physicality of the body. Similarly, men, uh, I guess the parallel would be engaging in a testicular exam to try again, find some kind of abnormality. And this confrontation with our very creatureliness can be quite disturbing. And as a result, we think that can introduce a level of trepidation or a level of reluctance to engage in these sort of behaviors. It's not something somebody wants to find a positive result from, either a testicular exam or a breast exam. So you question whether the person is even qualified to do that exam, given their investment in having it come out negative. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's not exact. Yeah, you, you, your best case scenario there is, is finding nothing. It's, right. It, it's, so uh, you're not going to try too hard. That, that's the concern. Sure, sure. Because it's much easier to walk away and say, oh, nothing there. Now, is that, uh, the, is that the not me, not now? I think, yeah, in a lot of respects, it ties into that. That's, I think, a very marvelous phrase that came out in a book uh, by Stephen Chaplin called The Psychology of Time and Terror. And the phrase connotes that response where we just want to shut, shut it off. We want to deny it. Death, not me, not now. Never me, never now. And what I think is interesting about it is, is, is that it connotes one of two different ways in which we can respond to these sorts of concerns about mortality. That is, we can, when confronted with the very conscious or rational threat of a health situation, we can try to deny it. We can engage in that not me, not now response. We can turn away. We can try not to think about it. We can turn on the television and get sucked into the latest episode of whatever show might be on. And ironically, it's probably about hospitals and, <laughs> well, and doctors running around with... And with when it's going to be likely something to do with death. If you think yeah. about the turn, flipping through the newspaper or turning on the, the TV and watching the news, it's very difficult not to hear about the latest shooting in this town, the latest explosion over in this country or this, that, and the other thing. So we are confronted with those reminders in a myriad of different ways. However, we also have to recognize that people can and often do take a more adaptive approach to a health situation, that some people under some conditions will seek out more information, will try to do the beneficial thing. I think a key challenge is understanding when and why they do the denial avoidance response versus when they do a more adaptive health-seeking kind of a response. Uh, Jamie, with a lot of the guests we've had on, we've talked about the human need to maintain a sense of value and meaning in mm -hmm. your life as an overriding concern for human beings. How does that need play into healthcare and the need to take care of one's body? I think it can play in quite powerfully. And so I was previously talking about how we respond to the conscious threat of our mortality. We might deny it or, or we might try to seek out what help we can. What we've uncovered over the years with terror management research is that knowledge about death, concerns with mortality, don't just operate at a conscious level. That would make things perhaps easier, at least more straightforward. They also operate very powerfully on an unconscious level, from outside of our awareness. And one of the things that we think they do as, as a result of our research efforts is that they engender the need to maintain self-esteem, the need to maintain a sense of value. Well, then you need to step back and think, okay, what are the ways in which people maintain self-esteem? What are the ways in which people in this society feel good about themselves? And here you start to introduce a number of potentially very interesting, I think, interfaces with health concern. So what do we do to feel good about ourselves? Well, of course, a very 
big premium is placed on physical attractiveness. How do you look good? Uh, well, you have to have the right hairstyle, the right outfit. You also benefit from having a nice tan. So there's one example we can, we can work our way into to suggest that sometimes people will engage in a behavior like sun tanning that we know has very it's clear... It's bad for you. It's very bad. It has, I mean, there's very few things that are that clear in right. this world, but uh, repeated sun exposure has increases the risk for skin cancer. That, right. that we do know for sure. Uh, but yet people do it. People do it in droves. People do it quite a bit, presumably because it makes them feel attractive. And it does make them feel you know, more popular more attractive, higher self-esteem. So you can see in that example the need for self-esteem having a somewhat ironic effect on people's behavior to the extent that it encourages them to do something that it could adversely affect their health. But it's counterintuitive in that here you're getting a message that smoking, for example, is going to eventually kill you. It's bad for you. You're going to get cancer from it. And yet your research is telling us that what terror management theorists call mortality salience, mm -hmm. leads people to actually smoke. How does that work? Well, I think it can. Uh, not necessarily to say that, that it always does. Right. So you use the term mortality salience, which is a, a way, a, a jargony term that we use to refer to situations in which we make mortality, well, salient, or we mm -hmm. heighten awareness of that. What we think can happen when that occurs, and what our research suggests, is that it will engage a two-part sequence of psychological defense. Okay, When we ask people to explicitly think about death, or when people are confronted with explicit reminders of their own mortality, they first engage in a what we like to refer to as a direct form of defense. I'm going to not think about it, or gosh darn it, I'm going to go out and quit smoking. Not today, but tomorrow, I'll do it. Yeah, soon, if maybe not tomorrow, then the next day. Uh, but we'll engage in what we call pseudo-rational types of justifications for the behavior, but then things slip in outside of, they slip out of conscious awareness, they slip into the, the unconscious as it were. You kind of push it out of we your We push it out, yeah, yeah. sometimes yeah. quite actively, right. engaging in an active process. I want to think of, about that. That's yeah. right, suppression, denial, repression, however you want to refer to it broadly, uh, and now they're operating on a different level. So to the extent that you're dealing with an individual or a, a group of people for whom, in your example, smoking can be a source of esteem. That is, smoking is a way to be accepted into the peer group. Smoking is a way to look cool. You got the Marlboro man riding off into the sunset with the tilted cowboy hat and the, and the nice jeans and the shirt and, and, and the attractive woman on his side. It conveys that kind of image that this is cool. Now it's marketed as a way for people to feel, in a sense, good about themselves. And in that light, you can ironically think that reminding people of their death would promote the very behaviors that you're ultimately trying to reduce. What are some of the things that actually wind up being good for you? Fortunately, a number of things. And, and that's a nice way to take solace from perhaps some of the depressing implications of these ideas. Remembering the fundamental point that we're suggesting here, and that is knowledge and concerns about that. These existentially oriented anxieties can engender needs for self-esteem, needs to feel of value. Well, we then need to step back and say, okay, what are the myriad ways in which people can do that that have health implications? We've talked about tanning, we've talked about smoking, but let's now also invite to the party uh, ideas like fitness, I think is a very good one, uh, where people want to work out, they want to exercise, uh, perhaps to feel good about themselves, perhaps to get that six-pack stomach or that hourglass figure, whatever it may be. 
But now we're dealing with a very fortunate consequence. We're dealing with a consequence wherein they're advancing their health, they're protecting their health, fitness is associated when done at appropriate levels with variety of reduced risks for a variety of reduced health threats. And so we can see a very beneficial consequence. Of course, we can also take things like fitness to the extreme. We can take excessive exercise or excessive dieting as another example of a situation where somebody can engage in a behavior, again, for esteem-oriented purposes, that can pose some pretty severe health consequences. I was reading the other day, actually, Dr. Goldenberg pointed out to me a recent article where in one of the nation's leading uh, weight loss clinics had caloric rations that were not unlike what the Jews were given in Holocaust camps. <laughs> and so, you know, here you have the starting realization that people are, well, in a sense, the, the ironic phrase here, are simply dying to be thin in putting themselves into such a situation to, to look good, to have that culturally idealized body image at the expense of their, of their physical health. An escape from evil? Yes. Ernest Becker talks about uh, most evil being committed by people who are either trying to do good or, or eliminate or eradicate, eradicate evil. evil. Don't some people in promoting health care wind up with unintended consequences? I think that can happen. And, and that's where hopefully the, the things that we've been talking about, the ideas that we've been trying to examine are of some benefit, is in pointing out the, the possibility of these unintended consequences. Working from very different perspectives, there's a long history of psychological research on, on things called fear appeals, using fear to try to elicit a behavior. And one of the things we know from that research is that fear is not always going to be an effective motivator unless you provide somebody with a way out. So it need not be necessary, it won't necessarily be effective for me to tell you, hey, smoking causes cancer and you smoke unless I follow that up with a precise recommendation of how you can stop smoking. What we can now add further to that is the notion that when people equate fatality information with health promotional campaigns, if we don't necessarily, if we don't try to integrate the appropriate health behavior into people's value systems, we could be putting ourselves into a vicious cycle whereby our very attempt to eradicate the behavior is ironically increasing it. How can health promotion be improved then? I mean, are you saying that we should be reminding people about death or, the, or, or we, should be remind, we should be telling people how they can improve their self-esteem in other ways? What, what's the answer here? Well, that, that's the big dollar question. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm not sure exactly what the answer is, but I think one of the things we can take from this is that if we're going to use fatality information, and, and it can be a very effective way to get people to comply with health recommendations. It certainly makes you sit up and take notice when you read or you learn that a behavior in which you're engaging is engaging is, is going to increase the likelihood that you could be six feet under in a, in, a, in a short amount of time, but that that needs to be juxtaposed and wedded to efforts to instill the appropriate behaviors into people's efforts, into the ways in which people maintain feelings of worth, maintain feelings of value that just using the threat information may not be most effective. Uh, what are some of the factors that you need to understand to, to be able to uh, care for our own bodies? Wow. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things that, that we don't understand. But hopefully, 
you know, what some of the things that we can start to do is recognize those forces that do influence influence us, and presum- presumably, hopefully, at least, there, there's some merit or some value to doing that. If we can understand why we do the things that we do, what we, in a sense, hope to gain from them, uh, maybe we can also start to see alternative ways to meet those goals. So, for in the example of somebody who realizes that, well, you know, I smoke because that's an important way in which I feel accepted into the group, well, what else can an individual do to be part of a group that they value? Well, there's lots of different things, and hopefully one's attention can be brought to those different trajectories of behavior without the baggage that comes with it. It just seems that when we're talking about health, we're talking about our bodies, in many ways we're talking about nature. Can you comment on that a little bit, how this talking about our bodies is similar to the way we, we think about nature and what, what that, how that influences us? I guess, yeah, that's a fascinating, fascinating connection to make. You know, Ernest Becker in The Birth and Death of Meaning talks quite a bit about humanity's relationship with nature. And one of the points that he develops, I think quite powerfully, is the notion that back in the day, people existed more harmoniously with nature. They were more in reverence for the power of nature, uh, more subservient to nature in a sense, recognizing its awesome, awesome power. Whereas in no large, uh, no small part due to the advance of technology, we're now in a situation where we're trying to control nature and we're not existing as peacefully with nature as much as we are trying to dominate it. We try to cultivate it, we try to manicure it and do these, these various things as you know. And I think you can draw a very interesting parallel with the body where perhaps we're no longer in peaceful coexistence with our bodies, but again, we're trying to control it, we're trying to cultivate it, we're going to bump up our breast size and tuck down our tummy and curve our nose or or tuck our our bellies, whatever it is we're going to do. We're going to manicure the body in an attempt to control it, to regulate it, to paint it up, as it were, so that we can put it on a nice display. And that, that I think, can have some unfortunate consequences. What can we do to really make ourselves healthier and help our our well-being? Well, I think it ties back into an earlier point, uh, and that is to try to encourage value systems that do promote good health habits is one thing that we can do to try to get, you often hear the phrase, get back to nature. And maybe there's a corollary of that in which we can try to get back to our bodies and not recognize them as being something that we have to so vigorously and rigorously cultivate and control, but to be more accepting of their natural progressions and their natural features. Of our body types. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Jamie, thank you. Thank oh, you very much for being a guest with us. Thank you guys very much. Our guest has been Dr. Jamie Arndt, the University of Missouri. Uh, thank you for a terrific conversation. Thank My you, pleasure. Jamie. You have been listening to an interview with Jamie Arndt, talking health and aspects of the human condition. So, Ken, what's your takeaway? Well, I love this notion, yet it boggles my mind. Increased awareness of one's death or mortality, what researchers call mortality salience, can make you smoke more cigarettes. That is completely counterintuitive. Can you explain that for us? Um, actually, actually, no, I can't. Um, it's <laughs> something I heard from uh, Sheldon and his, and his buddies, but I don't remember the explanation they had. You want right. to try and fake it? I'll, yeah, I'll I'll take a stab at it. Okay, so when you are when when your awareness of death has been increased, 
And then you're given a chance to kind of forget about that. But the death awareness is under the surface of your consciousness. It's still there, but you're not aware of it. Okay. When you try unconsciously to compensate for that anxiety, that unconscious anxiety, there are a number of things that you might do, and the terror management people talk about them, and one of them is you try to boost your self-esteem because self-esteem is a, is a potent defense against death anxiety. Right. So if you're a smoker and if you smoke cigarettes to enhance your self-image because you want to look like Humphrey Bogart or James Bond or something, which, we, okay. which I did when I was – you know, in my tw- uh, almost everybody likes That's, that yeah. when they start smoking cigarettes. Oh yeah, you, they make me look cool. I do it because they make me look. Cool. They make you look cool. So that's right. So that's boosting your self esteem and defense against your unconscious death anxiety. So you smoke more. The other okay. Okay. So the other part of that is your unconscious death anxiety is making you nervous. You don't know why. You don't. It's like you're not. It's not in the front of mind, but you feel a little more nervousness. So, what do you do? You smoke more. So when that's, cr- so that's crazy, isn't that crazy? But I mean, they, they've they've studied this stuff and they've found that these public service announcements about oh, you know, smoking's going to kill you makes you want to smoke more. Images on wow. cigarette, yeah, put images on cigarette packs of, you know, unhealthy lungs and stuff like that makes you want to smoke more. In- Imagine. <laughs> you think they could have had, any- you think they could have had any idea of that? Ah, uh, no. Well, when they agreed to put it on the packages in the first place. Well, they didn't have any choice in that. I mean, well, I know, but, you know, it's, it certainly seems like a nice happenstance that it turns out to further energize their market share. I'm sure they've studied it. But I'm sure they have. But you know, cigarette smoking in America is way, way down. It's you know, tell me about it. You can't, you can't smoke in offices or public places or you know, so bars and things. So you know, it's 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 declined tremendously. I think the market declines like four percent a year or something like that. Anyway, we digress. Yep, we digress. Yep. What else? What else hit you? Um, let me see what I wrote down here. I've got some incoherent notes when he said, not me, not now. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and he mentioned a book by Stephen Chaplin called The Psychology of Time and Terror, which I, I have not read that book, but I made a note that I'm probably going to look that up. And after that, he said, never me, never now, which led him to a discussion of two ways of people who deal with unpleasantness in this way. And the first is with just plain denial. You just, say no to it and, and press it down and go on with what you were doing. And that's a time-honored human response to death, anxiety, unpleasantness. If we couldn't, if we couldn't do that, we probably wouldn't not have survived. Yeah. Yeah. So species. Yep. Absolutely. We wouldn't be here yeah. if, if not for those, those Freudian def- mechanisms of defense. Yeah. Repression, uh, suppression, repression and denial, yeah. especially. Yep. Uh, but then as, as our friend Merlin pointed out, she said, when I'm in a doctor's office and he's telling me the results of a test I just had that in, it has to do with my own health, she says, I want the truth. I want it straight out and I don't want any sugarcoating about it because that's not the time for that kind of, uh, communication. Right. 
what that's what uh, Dr. Arndt called a more adaptive approach. Ah. First approach being denial. The second one being an adaptive approach is like, okay, this is one of those times where I'm about to get some bad news. And once you've lived a few decades, you realize that there's moments where you can feel your life changing. Mm. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. You get the, you get a phone call and something happened, you know? Sometimes it's somebody passed away. Sometimes it's somebody won an Academy Award. (laughs) Whatever it is, okay, life's just not going to be the same as it was before this happened. And And he, he was, he was talking like you, like you were about cigarettes. He was talking about suntanning, which everybody knows is horrible for you. Your skin cancer is, is rampant with people who spend a lot of time in the sun, but people continue to behave in that way because it makes them look good. I was with some young people this weekend who were doing exactly that. They're all tanning with yep. minimal protection. Yeah, that protection. And lots no, they of, use, lots of they skin use ex- suntan, but you know, but one got. It's sun- still not good yeah, for you. One got sunburned. The other was got tanned, and you know, it's no, definitely not. Yeah, but you look good, yeah. and you don't care that it's going to kill you. Right. Same as the cigarettes. Yep. And and he talked also about young women severe. I, I like his phrase. He says severely rationing caloric intake. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Oh yeah. And he said that so they're starving themselves. And the phrase he used was dying to be thin. Young women are dying to be thin. That's uh, it's harsh. Harsh, harsh, and tough and tough to take. And he mentioned fitness clubs, which people join because they're all motivated usually after New Year's resolutions, yep. and then. They go for a while and then they don't go, and that's basically the health club model. Because I've I've heard if if everybody who was a member of the health club showed up on the same day, they wouldn't be able to fit in the building. Probably not in the parking lot, <laughs> but they know. But they know, they know. how often people yep. are going to come. They've yep. they've been doing this a long time. Absolutely. So people join fitness clubs to make themselves feel better, and then and then don't go. Probably book clubs, and there's a lot of other things like that. You say, Absolutely. Oh, I'm going to do this. It's called contracted recurring revenue. Yep. yep. So one aspect of the pandemic is to point out how unhealthy Americans already are. Like you said in a previous episode, we're eating ourselves into obesity diabetes, heart disease, myriad other maladies. Yeah, when I said we, I meant me, Steve. <laughs> I'm doing I, I'm I'm doing all those things. I, I was being kind. I'm so No, yeah. I know. I know. All right. Well, listen, I got to get my I got to get my life together, man. All right. All right. So, you're just like you're an American. What do you want? Our, I know. No, so, doing my part. Yeah. And we have sedentary lifestyles and we're consuming processed junk food and sugary drinks and and of course, there's the environment that we help to pollute. All of that contributes to our ill health. And, you know, all these factors contribute to the pre-existing conditions that are most dangerous in the pandemic. Wow, that's right. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why America is having the number of deaths from COVID-19. I mean, it's, we're not... Yeah, and I've got... I've got several of those conditions, and I haven't missed a day of work. I'm on the front line every day. Well, you've been lucky. I'd be one of the guys. They'd probably say, "Yeah, Ken, that might be a bad idea. You're Maybe damn, you should hang out." You're damn lucky. It's like I don't have any. Uh, yeah, I don't really have any choice. I got to pay my bills. It's yeah. not an option for me. So I'm struck with with this idea, Jamie. So he talked about what we're calling maladaptive behavior. That's but, a great word. Yeah, yeah, that's from Lila Rothschild and. He's talking about maladaptive responses to mortality salience that may produce unhealthy behavior, like 
like we said, smoking, tanning, excessive dieting, which, you know, results in anorexia and bulimia. So our heightened death awareness in this pandemic and subsequent defense against death anxiety may include similar maladaptive behavior, like the need to increase self-esteem by risking COVID exposure prematurely, like opening and going to restaurants and sporting events and beaches. And of course, now we have Trump rallies. That's right. Yeah. And think about it. If unconscious death awareness can cause more cigarette smoking among smokers, is it a stretch to imagine that it causes more risk-taking in the midst of the pandemic. I had not thought of it, but now that you put it that way... It makes sense to me. It makes sense. At the same time, people's psychological need to end social distancing and self-quarantine ahead of schedule seems to play nicely into the hands of the politicians who are willing to risk everybody's lives to get them back to work, reinvigorate the economy get them into political rallies so that the politicians will get points for telling voters what they already want to hear. Right. Similarly, being constantly reminded of death during the pandemic may produce other unhealthy alternatives like increased smoking, drinking, and drug use, not only out of boredom, but out of a disregard for personal safety born of a need to increase self-esteem, to increase defense against the death anxiety that the pandemic is giving us. So this fuels our restless drive to get out of the lockdown, out into the world, and despite the risks to ourselves and others. Right. So bravery in the face of a pandemic is a self-esteem generator, like bungee jumping or skydiving or driving your car too fast or rock climbing. Wow. So then Jamie also talks about our bodies and our relationship with nature. Yeah, well, you know, when he did that, I was reminded of my early schooling in uh, religion and uh, Genesis, where God gives dominion over nature to man. God created humankind in his image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and every living thing that moves upon the earth. We we were put in charge. I mean, according to our view of things, th- there's other, other ways to look at it. Yeah, yeah. I think you should have said that with a God voice. Be, <laughs> be fruitful. That's right. Well, and multiply. That, <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, God always has. Do you remember? Do you yeah. remember God in the Monty Python uh, Holy Grail movie where he's got behind clouds that open like a uh, like a theater screen, <laughs> and he's talking to them? Right. That's a good idea, Lord. Of course, it's a good idea. Right. God. God never sounds like Mike Tyson, you know. It's like he always, no, he's always got he that, does not. He's always got that voice, you know. Be fruitful and multiply. Okay. So that's so that's significant because we see ourselves outside of nature. Right. We are projected into nature by God in our Christian tradition that we inherited, and we're at war with our own bodies in a sense. Right. Because we we did come out of nature. I mean, we, we there's no question about it. We know that now. We know that Dar- Darwin has shown us that very 
plainly. We didn't know Correct. it. We didn't know it 500 years ago, but yeah, now no, but yeah. we're which is why all a lot of this discussion is timely because we keep we keep learning new stuff. Yes, and the COVID virus is, after all, a direct result of nature. But it's right? not not the way we like to think of nature as our mother and provider. We have this reverence for nature. In this scenario, nature is an evil mother wantonly taking life for no reason. Right. You hear these conspiracy theories that try to blame scientists for creating the virus in a lab or governments for releasing it on their enemies. And I suppose these notions are probably necessary to reassure us that nature is not capable of mindless evil, even though we know it often is. Right. At the same time, we like to blame climate change on human activity. And of course, the two are linked. That's a proven fact. But nature's response with hurricanes, tornadoes, drought, floods, disease, that's all an equal part in this climate change saga. Well, that's true. From my earliest days of learning Ernest Becker's theories, when he discusses um, our animality, because we're animals, yep. or our creatureliness, because we're creatures, yep. that whole discussion made me uncomfortable. I didn't like either one of those words when he wheeled them out back then, and I still don't like them now. Yeah. I don't like I don't like talking about my animality. I don't like talking about my creatureliness. The whole business makes me uncomfortable. And our animal bodies are part of nature, and as such, our bodies are our enemies and our struggle to control nature. That's right. And therefore to control death. Yeah, that being an animal means you're going to die like every other animal. You don't want to be an animal, you don't want to die, you deny your animality. Right. There's a chain there, but it's pretty strong strong links between those those ideas. So, you think about what a bind our psychological need has placed us in, being at war with our own selves, and here we are in a dangerous pandemic that requires extra vigilance, not less. Wow. We're ending in another downer, Steve. Just call me Debbie Downer. Okay, Debbie. <laughs> Join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. Subscribe on your favorite platform. And support us on Patreon. We are 100% listener supported. Thank you, everyone, for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everyone. Stay well. <laughs>